Please join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing as we look into your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you help us forget ourselves and that we see Christ. Father, I pray for your special blessing to call me, to help me communicate clearly your truths, not mine, but yours, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look today at the conversion of Saul. And let me say right up front, I'm probably going to slip and say Saul or Paul or Paul or Saul. It's the same guy. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. So I may go in and out of those just by habit. But you know the story of Saul's, Paul's conversion. You may have learned it in Sunday school as a child. You may have read about it in your daily Bible reading or perhaps in one of your community groups, the Studying Acts, and you've heard about Paul's conversion. Maybe you've heard a sermon about it in the past. Most of us know pretty much what it's about, right? Saul, who later becomes Paul, is a persecutor of Christians. He's on the road to Damascus when he sees a very bright light. Jesus talks to him. And Saul, the persecutor of Christians, is saved. It's a great story. And it's not the only place this appears because Paul talks about his conversion in Acts 22 and also in Acts 26 when he's giving a defense for the reason for the hope that is in him. Now these two accounts give some details that aren't found in Acts 9. And I'm going to supplement our text with some of those things so you don't have to keep turning back and forth because we want to have a full picture of Saul's conversion. Now, if you're like me, you may not have thought beyond the narrative because it is a narrative account of what happens. But I'll tell you, we miss a lot of what God is telling us when we do that. And I'll confess to you that I was, I, I was doing that myself until one day Bruce Rowland asked me if I'd um, stand in for him at his community group and they were looking at Acts 9. So in, in order to prepare for, for teaching that, I read through Acts 9 and it just jumped out at me. The Holy Spirit showed me all kinds of things that are in this text that I hadn't seen before. And I immediately decided I really want to preach this. So you're the benefits of that, of Bruce asking me to stand in for him. And, uh, and I've been excited to preach this for, for weeks now. Now, to grasp the import of this passage, we do need to look back a couple of chapters. At the end of chapter 7, we read about Stephen's martyrdom. You remember Stephen. He was one of the original seven that was chosen to be a, a table server. The prototype of the, the deacons. And we know that Stephen was full of grace and wisdom. And he was doing great wonders and signs. And this caused some enemies to rise up. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was teaching and which he was speaking. So they conspired to to raise some charges against him. And they brought some false witnesses. And they had a trial. He got arrested. Stephen gives the single longest defense of the gospel found in the book of Acts. And it ended with accusations against the members of the council. And at the very end, he sees a vision of Jesus in heaven standing at the right hand of God. And so the members of the council, they rushed him and they took him out to stone him. So we see in in Acts 7, 58, just a, a little thing in here, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was there guarding the garments. Saul, who's later to become Paul, is first mentioned in this passage. And what this tells us is he's in the thick of this. He's not just some bystander. He's actually holding the robes 
watching the robes of the people that are stoning Stephen. And then in Acts, 1, or Acts 8, 1 through 3, in verse 1 it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And then we're told, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering House after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See, Saul was not just a spectator. He approved of what happened to Stephen. This is the start of a great persecution of Christians that happened at this time. Now, note, it wasn't by the government. It was by the Jews. Saul himself was persecuting the church and trying to destroy it. He tells us this in Galatians. He also describes himself in 1 Timothy as a blasphemer and an insolent opponent. So here is Saul. He's dragging off men and women and he's sending them to prison. And this is where we find him at the start of chapter 9. So read along with me as we look in verses 9, 1 through 3. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. This first point, or this first section I call, Saul sees the glory of Jesus. Saul sees the glory of Jesus. Now, picture this in your mind. He's on the road to Damascus, and a bright light shines around him. This happened about noon. He tells us this in Acts 22 and in Acts 27. Now, if you know about the noon sun, it's the highest in the sky. And the noon sun always seems brightest to us because it's right overhead. It's not casting shadows. It's not at an angle. It's right over us. Saul describes this light as a light from heaven, but not as the sun. He doesn't say it's the sun. He says it's a light. And it's brighter than the sun. Now, the men traveling with Saul, they saw the light too, we find out. So Saul is not hallucinating. He's not imagining something on the way with his traveling companions going, what's this guy doing? The light shines around them too. And we find out that they all fall to the ground. See, in Exodus 34, we're told that after being in the presence of the Lord... Moses' face shined, reflected God's glory. Now, this wasn't a sunburn on Moses. It wasn't coming from within. It was reflecting God's glory back out to people. He had to veil his face when he was around the Israelites. In Ezekiel 1, we read that there is brightness shining all around God. And in Matthew 17, we read of the transfiguration of Jesus. And here he gave Peter and John and James a glimpse of his glory. And we're told that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Paul is seeing Jesus' glory shining around him. And it causes him to fall to the ground. And we read this as we pick up again with Acts 3. Now, as he was on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul is on the ground. The men have gone to the ground. He's in terror, and he hears this voice calling to him. Now, he can't see. It's bright around him. But he hears his voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, from Acts 26, 14, in Paul's account, he says that the voice is speaking in the Hebrew dialect, most commonly or most understood to be Aramaic at that time. Now, the voice called out to Saul only. He didn't say men. The voice didn't say, hey, all you guys. The voice called to Saul directly, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It wasn't intended for the others to hear. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone around. The men with Saul hear the voice, but they don't understand according to Acts 22. So there's something, there's a voice going on. But at this point I call, Saul hears the voice of Jesus. So Saul sees the glory of Jesus, and now Saul hears the voice of Jesus. And pay attention to what... Jesus is telling Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul was going back and he was getting letters from the synagogues to go persecute the Christians. He was going after men and women. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus likened the persecution of his followers as to persecuting him. In Luke 10, 16, Jesus says, The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Jesus is showing the unity of himself and his followers. Jesus is the head, and the church is his body. He tells us in John, we are in him, and he is in us. Now pause to think about what Jesus is telling Saul here. When they persecute the Christians, they persecute Jesus. How often do we take it personally when someone rejects us because of Christ? We need to remember that those who condemn us for following Christ are rejecting the one we follow. Their sin is not against us. Their sin is against him. Now, perhaps today you're rejecting Jesus Christ. Perhaps you don't see a need to follow him. Perhaps you refuse to acknowledge him as Lord. According to Jesus, that means you have ultimately rejected God. You cannot profess a true belief in God if you don't profess a belief in his son. And you are not professing a belief in his son if he is not your Lord. He's just another good man. He's just another religious figure. In Acts 26, Paul wrote that Jesus told him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were sharp, pointed sticks. They were used to prod livestock to get them to go where you wanted to go. And in essence, Jesus is telling Saul, you can't resist God. Perhaps today you're kicking against the goads. 
Perhaps today you're trying to resist God's call. His call for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And so today I urge you, don't resist. Don't kick against the goads. Hear your Savior calling you. Well, in verse 5, Paul asks, Who are you, Lord? The Greek word for Lord is also used for sir. Now, while some say that Paul was being polite, Who are you, sir? You don't fall to the ground surrounded by a brilliant light from heaven and use an address of mere politeness. Saul meant to acknowledge the voice that he heard as that of the Lord. And then Jesus tells Saul exactly who he is, repeating the charge of persecution. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul did not believe the Christians who told him that Jesus was alive. He was trying to have him stoned. He was trying to have him convicted. But now here is Jesus, alive, calling Saul by his very name. And in the Acts 22 account, Saul asks, what shall I do? Saul doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't go, wait a minute, you're a dead guy. Wait a minute. No, no, no. Who are you? You're, You're fooling with me. He doesn't argue. Saul goes to submission. And Jesus directs Saul to get up and go into Damascus where he will receive further direction. Now in the Acts 22 account, Paul says that Jesus would tell him all that he was appointed to do. And in Acts 26, Paul said that Jesus explained the purpose of his appearing to Paul. Listen to what he says. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me And to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In 1 Timothy 1 and in 1 Timothy 2, Paul notes that he was appointed to the service of Christ to be a preacher, and to be an apostle. Now, meanwhile, the men with him are speechless. Remember, they don't understand what's being said. They hear a voice, but they don't see anyone. They can't make out. There's this bright light. They fall into the ground. They hear a voice, and they don't know what's going on. Well, this takes us to Acts 9, verses 8 and 9. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So I call this section Saul is chosen by Jesus. Saul sees the glory of Jesus. Saul hears the voice of Jesus. Saul is chosen by Jesus. Saul gets up after Jesus commands him to do so. He stands up. But he can't see. He's blind. In Acts 22, he says this is because of that bright light. He attributes it to the bright light, not to shock, not to his system shutting down, not to anything other than it's the bright light. And he has to be led by the hand. Who did the leading? It was the very men that were with him. Notice that they weren't blinded. They saw the light. They fell down. They heard the voice. But they weren't blinded. They didn't understand the voice. They're fine. 
Only Saul hears the voice. Only Saul is blinded. And they have to take him by the hand and they have to take him to Damascus. So he finishes his journey to Damascus. He goes to Damascus, but something is different about Saul now. He's not going there to persecute Christians anymore. He's going there in submission to Christ. Christ tells him to go on to Damascus. For the next three days, Saul sits in darkness. He's blind. He doesn't see. For the next three days, Saul doesn't eat. His whole world is turned upside down. He's had an encounter with the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sovereign God. And so he prays. Saul prays and he meditates on what he's just seen, what's just happened to him. If the men saw the same light and they heard the same voice and they could see when he couldn't, but they couldn't understand the voice that was saying, what does that mean? Well, it meant the message of Jesus at that time was meant for Saul. It wasn't meant for them. It was meant directly for Saul. Now, see, this is not the first time something like this has happened. In Daniel 10, we read that Daniel saw a vision of a man, but the others around him didn't see it. In John 12, Jesus prayed to the Father to glorify his name. A voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. But some there heard only thunder. Others said that an angel had spoken to Jesus. Now to us, this should not be surprising. Because unbelievers don't hear the voice of the Lord. Jesus said that he is the great shepherd and that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes that the things of the Spirit are discerned spiritually. And this comes only to those to whom God has granted understanding. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We don't understand the workings of the Holy Spirit or upon whom he chooses to work. But this then that we see right in front of us in this passage and others is evidence of the election about which Pastor Ron preached some weeks ago. Recall that Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And there are many passages that speak of election. Romans 9.11, Titus 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. 2 John 1. Now that's not to say that these men were never saved. We don't know that and please don't read that into the text. Scripture is silent about what happened to the men who were with Paul. Now if we use our sanctified imaginations, I could imagine that Paul probably preached to them. I can't imagine Paul not doing so, but we don't know. But we know that at that time, at that place, they were not saved. We don't know what happened to him after that. Well, let's look at verses 10 through 16. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this section I call Saul is changed by Jesus. Saul is changed by Jesus. The narrative has now shifted to Damascus, and this is where Ananias is. And God calls Ananias in a vision, and Ananias answers, here I am, Lord. I recall that when God called Abraham, when God called Jacob, when God called Moses, when he called Samuel, when he called Isaiah, they all responded to God in a similar fashion. God tells Ananias to get up and go to Straight Street and find Saul. He tells Ananias that Saul has seen a vision about him, coming and about him coming to restore his eyesight. That a man named Ananias is going to come to you. Now Ananias has heard about this man. So Damascus is about 135 miles, about six days walking journey from Jerusalem. But Saul's reputation has preceded him all the way out there because people had fled. So with his reputation going before him, Ananias knows that Saul has the authority to arrest Christians. And he's understandably reluctant to go meet him. But notice in verse 15 that God overrules Ananias by telling him, go. God tells Ananias that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and and kings and of the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There is a lot to unpack here, so we're just going to talk about it and touch on it just briefly. One, God tells Ananias that he has chosen Saul. It is God who calls people to ministry. I said before, to be called and not serve is sin. But to serve and not be called is foolish. Saul was told by Jesus that he was appointed to serve. And now Ananias is told the same thing, verifying what Jesus told Saul. So it's not just Saul's word of what Jesus told him. Ananias has heard the same thing from Jesus. Three times the word name is used. In verse 14, Ananias says, all who call on your name. Verse 15, God says, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Verse 16 says, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now think about what all this means. Jesus said we are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Peter healed a lame man in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul cast a spirit out of a girl in Philippi in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter and John were ordered not to teach in the name of Jesus. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. God says that all those who call on his name shall be saved. And in Acts 4.12, we're told that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Even today, the name of Jesus evokes a response. Some join and praise him as our savior. Others condemn the very utterance of his name. Some go so far as to blaspheme and use his name in a profane way. But there's one thing for sure, there can't be any ambivalence about the name of Jesus 
He is either your Lord or he is not. And this is the very name for which Saul is called to carry and to suffer. And suffer Paul did. We can find all his suffering in Acts, or I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 29, where he talks about shipwreck and being cold and being, being hungry and, and suffering, all the things that happened to Saul. This is the man who hated Christians, the man who persecuted all those who spoke in his name, the man who would now be persecuted himself for the same reason, the man who traveled great distances to imprison believers, the man who would now travel great distances to free unbelievers. Paul set off to bind believers and bring them back to Jerusalem. But he himself would be bound and sent to Rome. See, after encountering Jesus, Paul is changed forever. When we pick up in Acts 9, 17 through 19, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So I labeled the section, Saul is identified as belonging to Jesus. Saul is identified as belonging to Jesus. Ananias obeys God. He takes God at his word and he goes to the house and he addresses Saul. And he says, brother Saul. See, based upon God's word, Ananias now recognizes Saul as a brother in Christ. Saul had a reputation. But Ananias put that aside and accepted Saul. He did not hold on to Saul's past. And according to Acts 22, Ananias told Saul, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what was seen and heard. There's a lesson here for us. How do you react when God saves someone you most certainly doubted would ever be saved? How about that annoying neighbor, that cruel boss, that unethical coworker? How about the person who attacked and ruined your reputation? The person who's converted while in jail or in prison? Or that ex-spouse? If God has forgiven them their trespasses, as he has yours, will you address them as Ananias did Saul, as brother or sister? Ananias lays his hands on Saul, and Saul instantly regained his sight. In the Acts 22 account, he tells Saul, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And Paul did just that. He got up and immediately was baptized. Now we see baptism happening throughout Acts. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were baptized. In Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch believed and was baptized. In Acts 10, Cornelius and his household believed and were baptized. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer and his household believed and were baptized. Baptism is a public declaration, an outward expression of the transformation of a person who is called upon Jesus. All of these people reacted with joy. They declared that they identify with Jesus, that he is their Lord. And today, baptism means the same thing. It is identifying with Christ. For Paul, it was the first declaration of his salvation. So what does this all mean for us? 
How do we apply this? It's a great story, but how do we apply this to our lives? What does it mean? Well, number one, recognize that we are like Saul. Like Saul, we are all on the road to our own Damascus, choosing to exercise our own sin, basking in our own righteousness. You know, I used to say when I gave my testimony that I don't have a testimony as powerful as the drug addict or the the spouse abuser or the gambler or whoever. See, I've come to realize that in doing so, I was declaring I wasn't as bad as the other guy. That my salvation was not as miraculous as his was. But studying this passage taught me differently. All this time, I was denying the depth of my own sin and I was denying the miracle of the work Jesus did in my life. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul called himself the foremost of sinners. Paul did not say he was foremost of sinners, but rather, I am foremost, or the worst. He was expressing a true humility, something we all must do when coming to Christ. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In James, we read that if you break one law, you are a lawbreaker. You've broken the whole law. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Saul hated Christians to the point that he deserved the death penalty. Jesus tells us that if we hate someone, we're guilty of murder in our hearts. Well, if the wages of sin is death and we've all sinned, then we've all sinned to the point that we deserve the death penalty. Paul was an enemy of Christ. But in Romans 5.10, we read that we were enemies of Christ. In James, we're told that to be a friend to the world is to be an enemy of God. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our trespasses. Now, after a long career in law enforcement, and you can verify this by asking any of the, uh, the law enforcement officers or the paramedics or the nurses or the firefighters or any of these people in the congregation, dead is dead. There's no such thing as part dead, kind of dead. I never met a part homicide investigator. We didn't go to a part murder scene. Dead is dead. David knew that his son, who he had with Bathsheba, who died, would not come back. And everyone who ever died on this earth is still dead today. Well, except for those who believe in Jesus, because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But even those who were raised from the dead, Lazarus, the young girl that Jesus raised, even those who were raised from the dead didn't raise themselves. They were raised by God. Like Saul, we came to know the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God, uh, uh, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the light, has shown in your heart, piercing the darkness of sin so that you may see who he is. Like Saul, we are chosen by God. Acts 13.48 says of the believers at Antioch, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now understand the structure of the sentence. Not those who believed were appointed to eternal life, 
but those who were appointed to eternal life believed. In Colossians 3.12, we are called God's chosen ones. In Romans 8.33, we are called God's elect. Like Saul, we are changed in, by Christ. We all once lived in the passions of the flesh. But our minds are renewed and we are being transformed into the image of Christ. Like Saul, we are identified as belonging to Christ. Ananias recognized Paul as being a Christian. So too, I pray others recognize us as belonging to Christ. Paul rose up and obeyed Jesus by being baptized. And in Acts, Acts 9.20, by immediately proclaiming Jesus. If you've been baptized after coming to Christ, you're identified as belonging to him. Now, we're not talking about infant baptism here. Babies don't proclaim Christ. And just because you might have been sprinkled as a baby, it does not mean that you are saved. Quite the contrary. If your hope is solely in the fact that you were sprinkled as an infant, I might suggest you might not be saved. Baptism does not save us. It is an outward expression of the inward transformation that Christ has brought in us. Now today we're going to be baptizing people who, like Saul, are rising to declare their salvation in Christ, that he is their Lord. They're making a public commitment in obedience to his word. And they're telling all of us that their salvation is just as miraculous as Saul's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the miracle of salvation. You raised us, though we were dead, yet shall we live. Through the atoning work of your Son, Jesus Christ, none other. Father, it is not works. We've done nothing to deserve this. We've done nothing to earn this. We cannot buy it. Father, it is through your Son alone that we have salvation, in whom we have placed our trust, in whom we declare as Lord. Father, help us to remember this, to grasp this. Father, never to diminish the miracle that you've worked in each of our lives, to praise you daily for the salvation that you've given us, to recognize that we are like Saul, on the road to Damascus, basking in our righteousness, committing our sin, until you changed us. May the glory be yours alone and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.